morning. Hi, my name is Erin James Brown. I am the Director of Discipleship for Urban Village Church, and my nickname, I just recently learned, is also called the Notorious EJB. So I'm so happy to be here with you this morning. Will you pray with me? God, God who listens and who is ever-present, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Because often, God, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are irreverent and a string of curse words and harsh sayings about people with tattoos in other languages that are misspelled. But God, you are present this morning. And so may this time that we have together be not about me, but about us as a community realigning our hearts to worship you realigning ourselves so that we can leave this place feeling recharged and going out into the world to share with the world that needs what we have found in you. Be so present to us now, God, that we feel the trembling of our spirits. You are our God, and we are your people. Amen. Well, good morning. Our passage this morning began uh, kind of halfway through a really important and lovely story. So I'm going to summarize what happens up until Hannah is present before God, praying, and this unknowing and kind of stupid priest observes what she is doing. What we didn't read is that it is that time again for the Hebrew people. Processions of folks poured into the city streets and the town was abuzz with activity. This is the time for making a profit, the time to see old friends and distant family members, the time to share forbidden romances behind insecure, flapping, makeshift walls of tents, and the time to worship God. It happened maybe not all at the same time, but it did happen in the same place. And this year, they marched into the city walls of Shiloh to offer their sacrifices to the Most High God. This was the space where they believed God's presence resided. So they traveled across the desert and lushed hill country sides to arrive at this city of sacred and sensual activity. This was before Jerusalem had been established as the central place of practicing worship and spiritual authority. This was before Saul or David had been announced as kings. This was a time when each man and woman was found in their own right to just try and survive. And they approached local judges for dispute resolution, but at this time, the judicial system was broken. The people remained unhappy and grumbled about the unfairness of trial rulings. And so after years of punitive rather than restorative justice measures, the people approached their gods with sacrifices and with trouble brewing in their hearts. And so Hannah drug her feet into the city walls. She knew its back alleys and its secret passages because they approached the same place every year. She and her husband Elkanah and his other wife Paniah arrived at the same place every year 
And their timeshare always looked the same. It was decorated in drab, sandy hues of beige and chocolate and hazelnut. They visited the same merchants and shopped at the same places to prepare for their stay and their worship practices. And Panaya's children, they were many and they were raucous. They reflected their mother's arrogant and aloof parental involvement because they were monstrous children who ran around naked with their tiny baby giblets hanging out, with their sharp teeth dangling from their mouths. And so Hannah dreaded the trek. The stay in the holy city watching her vicious sister wife and her evil spawn enjoy themselves. It was a time of year that reminded her of every other day when she would grasp her stomach. Her womb that embarrassingly leaked blood down her legs and exposed her shame. The lack of the ability to do the one powerful thing she could do in, with this tiny life of hers. The lack of ability to give life. So Hannah dreaded the trek the forced prayers to a God who seemed deaf and apathetic to her cries for a creative and life-giving power, to a God who didn't allow her the dignity to hold her head high for the one thing that she might be able to do as a woman that no other man could accomplish. And so she went through the motions. She forced herself to participate in prayer and sacrifice, but willed for her soul to be free of the cramped walls of the city and the cramped walls of her womb that stifled her spirit. And like pouring salt on a womb, her sister wife, Panaya, viciously mocked Hannah for her empty, death-filled body. A woman's worth, you see, in that day was only found in her fertility capabilities, but also in her ability to give birth to a son. You see, sons could inherit land and have wealth and status. Without a son, upon Elkanah's death, Hannah would be thrown into the wilderness, forced to fend for herself because she knew her sister wife would never care for her. And without family or financial support, she was doomed to live a life of insecurity and instability. Without a child, Hannah lost the one chance to contribute to the world that did not value women's bodies, but sought to use and abuse women. And so we didn't read Elkanah's response, but it's terrible. He puts his arms around his wife as she weeps, and he says, Sweetie pie, am I not more to you than ten sons? Oh, brother, I want to punch him in the face. No, Elkanah, you are not allowed to say that to her. You are not Chris Helmsworth with his beautiful face and gorgeous lips and tight abs. You, Elkanah, your mouth looks like a cat anus. So you are not allowed to say that to her. Although Elkanah gives Hannah extra portions and tries to win over her love, he says stupid stuff like that, and the portions of food go to waste because her appetite is lost. There is little hope for a woman who has no hope of a future, for a woman whose body hurts, whose body hurts itself. 
So Hannah sneaks away. She snakes through the alleyways and the back passages of the makeshift rest stops of her fellow pilgrims, and she makes her space to the space where God's presence resides. And Hannah presents herself to God. She's not really allowed to get that close to the holy and divine because, you know, of the patriarchy and women and periods and things. But she gets just close enough. She covers her head so the other desperate women won't recognize her. And the cavern inside her heart opens up and the pain vibrates inside her. Have you ever felt that sudden expanse within yourself too? Like your shoulders might collapse in on themselves and the gaping wound that used to hold your heart in place now seems void. Hannah prays a prayer, the same prayer that she prays every waking moment. She prays for a son, someone who will ensure a future life, who will promise safety from Paniah, that bag of walking hair. She prays to feel a life stirring in her body so that she may feel for the first time a sense of pride. She prays. And she prays a prayer not like the one Jesus teaches his disciples much later, one that sounds eloquent and is about bread and giving stuff to the poor and God's kingdom coming. No, she prays a prayer that sounds genuine but that we can't even hear. She prays the prayer of the brokenhearted, the prayer of the dark night of the soul. You see, prayer is complicated and it can be many things. It can be a prayer of praise to God. It can be a demand, a cry for justice, or it can be a still, quiet moment of the soul. But I don't know about you. Most often my prayers are not elegant or well thought out. My prayers are not like poems, but more like a string of curse words and tears. Most often I pray like, like I really stop what I'm doing and I pray to God that a God that hopefully hears me when I find out that a friend is diagnosed with an illness that is about to ravage their body. Or I pray when my cell phone goes off late at night and I see that it's my parent calling. Or I pray when I find a lump on my body and I think it might be a tumor, but most likely it's a really big zit. Those are the times when I pray. Growing up, we had a pet bird. Does anybody like birds in here? They're terrible creatures, aren't they? Birds are nasty, with their feathers flung all across their cages and their beaks that look like curved hooks, and they smell like tiny bird feces, which smells sour and yet somehow sweet. It's disgusting. And our pet bird was no exception. This grotesque, tiny little thing was loved, was only loved by my dad. Every week my dad would read the newspaper. He would scour articles looking for stories that he thought the bird would like. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but he would tear the stories from the papers about dialogue of life of Dallasites and write notes to the bird, something like, you're a good bird, or poop here. 
And he wrote these words in thick Sharpie, and the bird must have thought they were the scrawlings of some tiny, crazed three-year-old. But my dad loved interacting with this gross animal this way every week. After a few, year, few years, the bird began to cough. It sounded like a drunk Furby with its batteries dying. While my mom and I wished that the hacking would stop, my dad sat by the bird's cage all night long, keeping vigil. He said he didn't want the bird to die scared or alone. And I've only seen my dad cry a few times in my life. He didn't cry on the day when I was going to get married and I thought I was going to pee on this expensive gold dress that I was wearing. He didn't cry when he kissed my cheek and he shook my spouse's hand as this symbol that our family and our life was changing forever. But he died when this damn bird died, or he cried when this damn bird died. I remember because we sat on the back porch and he tore off his baseball cap, exposing his balding head. And he grabbed his forehead and he sobbed. My mother didn't understand, and me with my scrawny seventh grade arms just placed a hand on his back, and I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was pray. I prayed silently, not really for the bird, because I didn't care, but I prayed for my dad, his pain. I received a text message a few days ago from my dad, and it said, the dog is having trouble breathing, and I'm taking him to the vet. The thing you have to know about my dad is he has this uncanny ability to find the stupidest animals at, like, shelters or disgusting breeders, and he falls in love with them. And this dog, <coughs> this dog humped everything in sight. And my dad had this idea to give it home haircuts, so it just always looked like a hypersexual gremlin. <laughs> and he loved that thing. Everyone despised this dog. And my dad, for some unknown reason, felt connected to this snorting sack of puppy testicles. <laughs> and a few seconds later, my dad texted, Please pray. I think if my dad thinks I have this special connection to God because I'm a pastor, like, like he often thinks my prayers as if I have a megaphone to God's ear, as if God cares more about what I have to say rather than the desperate mothers and fathers of children who are hungry and who are beaten, the mothers and fathers of children who are terrorized by the police, whose schools have outdated books and whose teachers are serving in overcrowded <coughs> classrooms with the pressures of standardized tests rather than the personal success of children. My dad, I think, thinks my prayers maybe are more important than the prayers of those parents. Is that what he thinks? But it's my dad, so I prayed. And embarrassingly, I even asked some people in this congregation to pray. Not really, not really because I cared about that ugly dog, although I do love animals, but this puff ball of trailing excrement was not that important to me. But most importantly, I cared about my dad, and he was in pain. 
And I prayed because I remembered being huddled on our back porch and feeling helpless as I placed my small hand on my father's broad shoulders. Prayer is risky. Prayer is us reaching out. It's us demanding to be heard when we feel most powerless, or most abused, or most lost, or most scared. Prayer is when we grasp for light in the darkness, when we grasp for warmth in the cold, when we grasp for hope when everything seems hopeless. The story of Hannah is not supposed to teach us to quote platitudes at each other or to question why someone prays when they do or how they do, much like the priest Eli does in his in unempathetic way. Prayer teaches us not to quote platitudes to each other when we see someone else in pain, like, oh, honey, just let go and let God, or everything happens for a reason, or I know God's going to do something good out of this. Because, yeah, you're right, God might do something good out of this. I might look back on this years later and know that the struggle brought me through something and I am much stronger now, but right now I just want to punch you in the throat. My blood boiling and anger rises because these placid statements are like weapons threatening the validity of deep pain. When I'm wringing my hands over worry about how I'm going to pay my bills, or when I sit alone with my ambivalence about whether or not I, too, want to be a mother. Or when my depression becomes so loud and it cripples my ability to function like a normal, breathing, moving human with a schedule. So the other characters in Hannah's story are like hyperbole or caricatures of what not to do the worst ways to respond. They compound Hannah's grief because they are, they're bullies, they're selfish, and they're distrusting of true experience. So when we read Hannah's story, this pain-driven woman who is about to proclaim the newness of creation into the world, who's about to set straight the history of the Israelites, who no longer have to depend on these judges to determine what's right, but who will bring forth a king. We remember that Hannah's story is a story of prayer in desperate times, of prayers that last a lifetime. Hannah's story teaches us that God acknowledges suffering. In fact, Hannah, most often it's women in the Bible too. Have you ever noticed this? There's not many of them, but the ones with names and the ones with words in their mouths are the first theologians who claim something that the people of God have thought for a long time and witnessed and understood for history. But they get to name it. Their story sets it in stone, and Hannah is no exception. Her story tells us that God is with those who suffer that God hears the cries of the mournful 
and that God mourns with them. That God has impeccable hearing and listens to the silent words of the pained. And God just nods and then reaches across the table and pours another glass of wine because that's all to do in times of grief sometimes. We know, you and I, we know that God is sympathetic and that God knows suffering. We know this because we read stories of it every week, because God sat alongside the bewildered Joseph and the unimpressed cattle as Mary shoved a human skull out of her cervix. God sat as that fresh-blooded, blood-curdling babe cried for the first time, and God knew that that babe was doomed, even before it gasped for air. God watched like a time lapse as Jesus' life went through speeding dangerously towards the cross. And at the moment of Jesus' last, last gasp of breath, God stopped the sun and the moon in the sky on their march towards the new day because God wanted to acknowledge that death and suffering and grief happen, that brokenness is real, and that loss is true. So we know that God is sympathetic to our suffering because we know that God, too, suffers. That God suffers when people turned away from God and chose other gods to worship. That God suffered when the nails pierced those callous hands. That God suffers when one of God's own feels heartache or the fear of death or the grief of change. But the story of Hannah also tells us that God doesn't just sit sadly by. The story of Jesus doesn't tell us that God just sits sadly by because, friends, our God is the knitter of the universe, the creator out of chaos. Because God is not static, but God is dynamic. God is moved by suffering. God is compelled to action by the cries. God hears those of the worried, those who are trapped in the whirlwind of injustice and violence and grief. My dad and that damn dog weren't suffering injustice or violence. But my dad feel, did feel a violence against his soul. He was watching his friend, his daily companion, being ripped from him. His daily companion struggling for breath. A tiny, helpless animal trying to suck in life and still couldn't get enough. So the veterinarian, this skilled and talented woman, told my dad that it would be mercy to put the dog to sleep. But there was nothing to do but that the scar tissue had taken over that tiny dog's pinky-sized lung suddenly. And so my dad, with tears and loud sobs, called me. 
we sat on the phone, and I know it's stupid to cry about, but I was over a thousand miles away. I didn't have the capability to comfort my father from afar away. Comfort this person who was supposed to be so strong, but who was in so much pain. <laughs> and so I prayed. Pray for that stupid animal. I prayed for a peaceful death. prayed for my dad, who would kiss a friend for the last time. And I prayed for his journey home to an empty house that would feel very different. My prayer wasn't special, but my prayer was taking a risk. Because that's what prayer is. It's taking a risk against all odds. But despite sanity and whether we are bitter or broken, prayer claims that we are still loved. We are still loved by a God who loved us first. Prayer means that we don't have to have it all together, that I can sit before you and not have all my stuff together. Prayer is taking a cue from Hannah that it's probably best to approach God with raw emotions, with tricky and seemingly impossible problems and speak, or not even speak, but merely to weep and whimper our deepest desires and our gravest mistakes and our most unimaginable hopes and acknowledge the deep ache in us that won't seem to go away. Because we know that we pray to a God who will one day get everything that God wants. Prayer doesn't mean getting what I want, or getting what my dad wants, or getting what you want. But it does mean that we are not alone. That we pray to a God who cares deeply about the longings of our hearts, and about the crushings of our spirits, and about the emptiness that racks our bodies. Prayer is powerful because it says to a God who does not turn a blind eye, a God who sits alongside and places a soft hand on our shaking shoulders. Because you know what, friends? God is not done with us yet. Our God is still working despite all evidence to the contrary, despite the ache, our God is working towards justice and wholeness. But these are big endeavors. The works of justice and creation and light and life and newness and fullness take generations upon generations to witness their fulfillment. So how do we remain people of hope when the wait seems long? The work towards God's kingdom is a long, long endeavor. And any small victory is short-lived because the reality of hatred 
and further grief and unknowing smacks loudly during our toasts of glory. But we serve a God who has a future already prepared. We serve a God who brought that future into our present through Jesus, who continues to show us glimpses of that hopeful future. Every once in a while, when we look up from our phones or out into the expanse and we notice God's presence around us, our God is one who continually provides when the night seems long, when the situation feels dire, and when the bitterness feels like it will choke out all signs of hope. Because our God brings forth creation out of chaos, light out of darkness, and life out of dead wombs. The end of the story is that Hannah finds herself pregnant again and gives birth to a son. Will you pray with me? God, filler of the empty and life restorer of the tombs. For generations upon generations, you have heard the cries of your people and you have not sat silently by, but you have been moved to compassion. So God, grant us the boldness of Hannah that we may be persistent in prayer even when the pain robs us of the words to speak aloud. Grant us the confidence in your steadfast love. May we proclaim that we are loved by you in our prayer today. Amen.